Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Season 11 continues, and as regular listeners know, we are currently focused on the Oscars. Each episode, I have a panel of film industry professionals to discuss the nominees in their category of expertise. There will be 10 episodes total, and we'll release two a week between now and the 94th Academy Awards on March 27th. Today, we're talking about original song, and I'm happy to welcome back some friends of the show. Mick Coogan, LA-based composer, singer, and songwriter. Mick, nice to see you. Hey, Scoot, what's up? Welcome back. Next, Louis Weeks, score composer, also based in LA. Hey, Scoot. And then finally, rounding out our panel, Chris Malamphy, chart analyst, pop critic, and host of the Slate podcast, Hit Parade. Chris, glad you're here. Great to be here, Skid. Listeners, if you're curious about our panel and their film credits, look them up on the Internet Movie Database. Below the Line also has a page on IMDb, so you can start on a specific episode and simply click through to the film credits of our guests. The five nominated songs are Be Alive from King Richard, Dos Origitas from Encanto, Down to Joy from Belfast, No Time to Die from the James Bond film of the same name, and Somehow You Do from Four Good Days. We're going to discuss them in that order. And while this conversation doesn't usually venture into spoiler territory, it's not impossible we'll say something about the films where these songs appeared, so do consider this a warning. First up, Be Alive from King Richard, music and lyric by Dixon and Beyonce. It feels so good to be alive. This black off if I tried. That's why I lift my head with pride. I got a million miles on me. They want to see I guess I'll start with sort of the stats level, which is that um, this at last is I believe Beyonce's first Oscar nomination after several near misses, including uh, songs from movies she starred in like Dreamgirls. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a strong belief she was gonna get in for a song from The Lion King, the live action version. Uh, and now at last she was favored to get in the nomination pool and she actually got in. Uh, her husband did not, one of the exciting uh, pre-Oscar betting pools was whether or not Jay-Z and Beyonce, husband and wife, were going to wind up each nominated um, if Jay-Z had gotten in with his song from uh, The Harder They Fall, uh, then I believe they would have been the first married couple, I think, in any category. There have been years where actors who are married have been up against each other, but not in the same category because, of course, actor and actress are separate categories. This would have been the first time that an act that um, a husband and wife would have been up against each other in the same category, but it didn't happen. So Beyonce very belatedly is finally getting her nomination. So this is one of those long time coming nominations. That so I just want to set that stage as you know those who have been waiting for Beyonce to maybe uh, get a an Oscar nomination. Her year is finally here. Whether or not she's favored is another question. Thanks, Chris. That's some good context. Thank you. Chris, to your point, um, you know, obviously Beyonce is, is, is an, um, an icon and, and one of the great American songwriters. 
and this song feels more true to what she's kind of been working on in the last 10 years um, than like a Lion King thing where you're just, where maybe it is a very focused, uh, 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 we're going to write this Disney closing credit song, which is, or uh, like a hundred other writers will write a hundred songs and Beyonce will sing it, something like this. This feels um, very much connected to the spirit of her kind of bigger catalog. And I really think it shows off her classic kind of songwriting and her vocal style. And it's really an excellent blues. It's a stomp. It's, it's, it's a classic kind of blues song. And the first time I heard it, I, I was, you know, blown away by its you know, the lyrical aspect, bringing all these aspects of the black experience um, and kind of centering around themes of family and things like that, that are so central to so many families and, and people watching the film. And, 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 I, and I was waiting for the tune to really kick into a kick into fourth gear where it's like, it's this stomp, but I think, and then listening the second time I said, well, you know what? the authenticity, authenticity of this tune is not going into full pop gear, is not bringing in this huge production moment. It's keeping this raw vocal forward blues that is so effective. And I think if you have like a Lion King stuff, it is gonna be this huge orchestral thing, but this is so skinny and, and spare and focusing on the great vocal that I think it achieves really what the song wants to do. So I think this is uh, really an excellent contender. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not the best prognosticator, but it is certainly um, a special tune. And I feel like, you know, it's just Beyonce in her element, I feel like. Uh, you know, I, I agree. I think that you, Mick, you hit on something that I think we could say for all of the songs in this category that there's a level of uh, reserve. I may be biased, but I think it's influenced a lot by film scoring, the technique. Um, I think a lot of these songs blend a kind of uh, pop production with a more emotional reserve that you might get um, from a film score rather than a full on pop song which is, you know, kind of a new thing. I think that the era of maximalism in pop music is, is starting to kind of like split, you know, that there are people who are deciding, okay, well, I, I, my songs are going to be the biggest, like most maximalist things out there, but you also have giant songs that are really pared down, really, really kind of minimalist. And I think it, you know, looking at all the songs in this category, um, I see a through line where they're they're a little bit smaller than I might um, anticipate uh, them. One thing that I th I think about when I think about this category is just how hard it is to evaluate what a success is, um, because original song is kind of a unique quirk. Uh, in the larger landscape of the intersection between music and film, where in a, in a lot of ways, it's kind of an anachronism. Um, 
especially now that soundtracks like aren't really a thing anymore. Um, and the kind of uh, integration of a song into a movie at, in a kind of uh, old school musical sense um, isn't really a thing. Now we'll get to the, the musical in the category later, but um, you know, so I find it, 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 it's an interesting question like, okay, well, what makes it a success? So is it like the, the role that this song plays in the film? Is it uh, the piece of music on its own? Like how would it stand up on the radio? Or is it something else where we're kind of looking at the song as a piece of, of editorial on the film itself, a kind of commentary or a kind of like a, of satellite that orbits around the film? Um, basically, like, is it a successful piece of marketing for the film? Um, I think that this Beyonce song is, uh, it's, I think it's successful on all levels. Um, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, she's the perfect choice for this film because of her relationship with her craft. Um, being a child prodigy, having family that's so integrated and crucial to her success in the business and just the kind of dominance that Beyonce has had over the industry. Like the parallels with the subject matter of the film are obvious. And I think in that sense, just the get of getting Beyonce and, and having her be such a crucial collaborator in the film in the sense is a huge success. Um, so like, again, it's, it's like, there's a lot of different ways to evaluate what makes the best song because it's kind of um, has to operate either as a piece of marketing or as a piece of uh, filmmaking or as a piece of pop music, um, you know? And, and so I, I think this song kind of checks the boxes on all three. And that's, I think what makes it a really strong contender. You guys put some great stuff on the table. Um, I want to follow up on some points both of you made. Um, Louis, as, as per Beyonce as pop icon, which no dispute she is, it's funny, when I did a, uh, an episode of my podcast about the music of the 2010s uh, at the end of 2019, I got a lot of feedback from listeners as to why I didn't include Beyonce which may sound strange. How could you do an episode of your podcast about the 2010s and not include Beyonce? The reason I didn't is because Beyonce had only one number one hit during the entire decade, and it was a duet with Ed Sheeran called Perfect. And now I want to key into something that Mick very astutely said, which is that this is of a piece with what Beyonce has been doing for the last 10 years, which is not really going for hits. That's the thing. Beyonce kind of reached escape velocity of the whole, I got to have a hit thing back around Run the World Girls when that underperformed on the charts. And she kind of said, okay, I'm going to go for art now. And her last few albums, certainly Lemonade, certainly the self-titled from 2013, she is all about what's going to bring me satisfaction, what's going to serve as great capital B black art. Uh, that's a big part of why she's in King Richard. I mean, this, this is a movie about black excellence, top to bottom. Um, 
it is a credit song. Uh, my wife uh, always wants me to note that because she, uh, my wife who's an avid Oscar follower says, I hate credit songs because they're not integral to the movie. I would say this one is more integral than most credit songs thematically. Um, and I like it, but would it be a hit to Louis' point? I'm not sure it would, but then again, Beyonce with songs like Formation and, you know, Flawless has been doing pure art for a while now that isn't necessarily bound for number one on the charts, and that's okay. Um, and I, I like your point also, Louis, that, that this song in particular may be influenced by score. I hear that too. This is actually also what Mick was pointing out, that you're expecting it at some point to kind of break out, and it never quite does. But then again, it's, it's kind of in its lane, and it knows what it wants to be. Um, so on that score, I, I, no pun intended, on that score, I'd say it's successful. Um, th this is her first nomination. Um, I don't know how favored she is to take the prize. I think we're going to talk about a couple of other prizes that at least in the prognostications I've read are more heavily favored, but it's Beyonce. She's been gunning for this for two decades now, you know, dating back even before um, dream girls, you know, she had other songs like her song for the pink Panther and stuff that were in contention. Uh, and now she's finally in the, in the, the big show. Let's see what happens, but it's, I agree with you guys. It's a very good song and a very interesting song. What's, what's interesting to me about this, this category is that each of the songs has a creator that represents like an absolute Titan, uh, in their respective fields. And also it's stretched across a series of decades. Um, there's a lot of people who have a hand in, in the creation of these songs in, in these categories who represent different eras um, and who were basically kind of like behemoths in their own right. It's a really heavyweight uh, category in a lot of ways, which again, feels kind of different. When I think of a rich, best original song, I think of, you know, historically it's kind of been like, okay, well, who's the hot thing right now? And let's put them in a movie and let's see, let's try and ride that wave. The trend of these songs seems to be like, let's get people who are the absolute top of their craft and represent kind of the, the peak of the mountain for what they do. And let's, integrate them into the into the film experience. I mostly agree, but let's hold that thought until we get to the James Bond song, because that's an interesting case. But yes, <laughs> I know. I know what you're going to say. And, <laughs> and I I want to I have a rebuttal ready. Good. <laughs> All right. We'll put a bit in that. Moving on to the second song on our list, Dos Orguitas from Encanto. Music and lyric by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Why don't I start by setting up some of the stakes on this one? So we just talked about Beyonce finally getting her first nomination. Now here comes Lin-Manuel Miranda looking to complete his EGOT. I mean, if you want to talk about high stakes, this is the one. Uh, 
Lin-Manuel has been favored to complete the four-part award. Uh, I'd call it a trifecta. What is that? A quadfecta? I don't know. Uh, since the mid-10s, he did not win for his song from Moana, How Far I'll Go. Uh, I'm blanking on what he lost to that year, uh, but he was fairly heavily favored. I, I think he lost to City of Stars from um, La La Land that year, if memory serves. Um, and okay, here's the really interesting part. I had to write indirectly about this song four weeks ago because the number one song in America is from the Disney animated film Encanto. And it's by Lin-Manuel Miranda, not sung by him, but written by him. But it's not this song. The number one song as we are recording this is We Don't Talk About Bruno, which is a fugue, a patter song. Uh, it is unprecedented in chart history on so many levels. And I won't go too deep on the data and bore you guys with all the reasons I explain in my Slate article why this song went to number one, but it's interesting. And it's about how streaming has completely upended the way our charts work, uh, such that a song with six different vocalists, plus the entire cast backing them up, could go to number one. That's utterly unprecedented in, in chart history, certainly Disney chart history. So the weird dynamic going into Oscar night is a lot of people want Lynn to win his EGOT. Lynn already has the number one song in America. It may not still be number one on Oscar night, although it's now been number one for war, four weeks. And I don't know if anything's gonna topple it anytime in the next three or four. Uh, so it may or may not be number one going into Oscar night. Um, and yet people have got to vote for Dos Uruguitas, uh, which is this lovely ballad and really closer to the traditional pick for a Disney film. As I pointed out in my article about Bruno, in the 90s when the Disney Renaissance happened, it was always the ballad that won the Oscar and went top 10 on the charts. Beauty and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast, not Be Our, Gu Be, Be Our Guest or any of the other up-tempo numbers. Uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight from Lion King, not Hakuna Matata or any of the up-tempo numbers. Uh, I skipped one, Aladdin, uh, A Whole New World, not Friend Like Me. Even though Friend Like Me got nominated for an Oscar, it was A Whole New World that won and it was A Whole New World that topped the charts. So for Disney, picking the ballad is the safe way to go. And this was the song that Disney picked to put on the short list. They didn't even submit We Don't Talk About Bruno. And when they had to pick songs, nobody, nobody realized this was going to be a hit. Not Lynn, not Disney, no one involved in the project. They were all caught flat-footed when this thing all of a sudden hurtled about 50 places up the charts the week after Christmas when everybody caught Encanto on Disney+. Plus, and this was the song that got streamed the most, the subject of the most TikToks, et cetera. So we have this weird bank shot thing going here where somebody's trying to get the eight ball into a, the corner pocket by banking it off of something else. And we'll see if that works. So that's the stakes for this for Dos Uruguitas. And we should probably talk about Dos Uruguitas as a song because it's a beautiful song. It's, it's a lovely song. That's funny learning that context. In my, in my world, um, TikTok reigns supreme. And, and, uh, and that's really how songs break now. It's, there, there is a dwindling number of, of, of songs that can get on top 40 formats. And that's one way to break it. That's a traditional. But now TikTok, anything goes. It can be a song from a Debbie Gibson song from 1986 can all of a sudden tomorrow go number one in an, on a lot of charts because of TikTok. Um, but for this tune, 
Uh, I, I felt this movie was a little con confusing to me as a as a Disney film. That, but this of all the songs in the in the film, Lin Manuel has his thing, his lane. Like Beyonce has her lane in the last ten years that that was so dialed in on on Be Alive. He has his lane, and it's like it's it doesn't veer far from what you heard in Hamilton and in uh, the Heights. It's it's rappy. It's it's rhythmic. Um, it's taking kind of rap flows and, and kind of melding them into this big kind of show tune grandeur with a lot of different pieces and, and refrains and stuff like this. But this song to me is like the least Lynn manual song on, on the list. And for some reason for me, it's, that's what makes it so good. It feels like such a beautiful theme and it's the, it is not overwritten. Whereas I feel like sometimes the film felt very overwritten in spots and the, in the music and it, and, and it was like, uh, it was just too much information. This film, this song is so focused and so familiar. It, it, it's, uh, it, it, it lends, the melody lends, um, can't take my eyes off of you. Interesting. So there's this pop familiarity right away to the tune. But I think the concept of these two little caterpillars where they both bloom into these two butterflies is just a spot on Disney thing that kids of all color and creed can just hear that song and go, okay, this is like a classic Disney song. Um, so I think that this song stood out in that soundtrack for sure as being have, as having its own soul um, that stands apart from, from the other work that I feel is very representative of, you know, I'm not gonna miss my shot. You know, it's like that, it's, it's you know, it's that, that thing that he does so effectively, this just feels timeless. And so I, I really find that this is a excellent song and would not be surprised if it won, but you know, really outstanding. I think that the song is really interesting because Chris, I, I really like I'm identifying with with your points about it's the relationship between the ballad and its typical place in not only like a, a, a traditional or Disney revival movie, but also in like the marketing behind it. You know, um, I think you're spot on that this is this is the typical choice. Um, I think it's a gorgeous song. I, I, I have it's it's kind of hard to talk about the song without getting into the score. Um, and so I will probably table that for our next episode, but um, you know, I have a question, Chris, do you, offhand, do we know how many times a song that was in a language other than English has been nominated for, for best song? It's not unprecedented. I don't know off the top of my head. It's, it's neither, exceedingly rare nor very common uh i remember there was a song from il postino back in the 90s that was in an, and i feel like J J jai ho from um jai ho from slumdog millionaire yeah uh, we have a tune in the last couple of years from an italian singer that diane warren e yes eo scene um that's a diane warren song that was in italian i i personally really appreciate the i mean obviously i just think it's really good that that filmmaking, all aspects of filmmaking in in Hollywood are becoming 
more integrated into different languages and different cultural experiences. Like musically, I think that um, it's just a really good thing for people to hear uh, a hit that, that uh, is in a different language, just to get, you know, like it's obviously just the, um, it's not anything that isn't super different from what's on top 40 right now, because there's quite a lot of, of music that's um, coming from other parts of the world. But I just think that, you know, historically, uh, Hollywood can be pretty conservative, especially where the English language is concerned. And so I just think it's a really good thing. Um, I, I don't know if that's a particularly, <laughs> I think that's a pretty obvious thing to say, but I think, I think that, you know, movies can be, American audiences are pretty, pretty hesitant to go into situations where English is not um, the, the main driver of the story. And I think that that's changing. And I think that, that the music of Encanto is, is, is so integral to the story that obviously we'll talk about it next episode. But yeah, I, I think that it's really, really good. It's a great song and it's really good that it's represented here. Several follow-up thoughts. You guys are keying into a lot of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, first of all, yes, it's in a, a foreign language in a film that is set in Colombia, mm-hmm. but is otherwise in English. And to mix point, Lin-Manuel Miranda knew he was challenging himself with this song because he grew up, you know, on the in Washington Heights on the Upper West Side and speaks Spanish but not 100% fluently. And he says he's rarely written in Spanish, despite his well-known heritage, his Puerto Rican heritage. Um, Moreover, he was really leaning on Colombian tropes in the music um, because the the song is set in Colombia. An analogy I made in my piece, and he has said similar things, though not in this exact way in interviews. This, This song is to Encanto what Edelweiss is to Sound of Music where people hear Edelweiss in The Sound of Music and they say, wow, that must be an Austrian folk song from decades gone by. Nope, Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote it. And they wrote it to sound like an Austrian folk song. Lin-Manuel was challenging himself. And he has said this in interviews. I'm almost quoting him here. He was trying to write something that could pass for a Colombian folk song. And he was challenging himself to write in a language that he doesn't often write in, despite the fact that he is conversationally fluent in Spanish, but finds it difficult to write in Spanish. so all of that is really interesting. Uh, you know, vis-a-vis Louis' point about uh, the audience's hesitance to hear something that's not in English. You know, of course, a couple of years ago, we had the wonderful spectacle of uh, Parasite winning Best Picture. And when he was, when he was up at the podium, director uh, Bong Joon-ho was talking about his pithy quote was that one inch barrier of subtitles or whatever his phrase was. You know, you guys have got to get over that one inch barrier. Um, Here's the thing. In Encanto, Dos Oruguitas is not translated. Uh, They just let it play. Uh, And you are meant to just kind of take it in. It's sung by uh, Sebastian Yatra, who is a current hit maker on the Latin charts. He sings reggaeton, normally up-tempo stuff. He doesn't normally sing this kind of Latin balladry. He does a beautiful job with it. Uh, it's fascinating that he's a male singer and yet the poignant moment in the movie uh, and this 
dovetails with what Mick was saying about how frenetic a lot of the movie is. I liked Encanto, but I totally take your point. It is a very frenetic movie. It's the quietest moment in the movie. It's the moment when Abuela is reminiscing about how the family came to possess this magical power and how she lost her husband. And it, it, just everything slows down when the song is playing. And so you're, it's a sung by a man and yet it's the thoughts of an elderly woman. Um, and so it's just, and it's integral. I mean, to the point we were making earlier about credit songs, this song could not be more integral to the, not only the plot, but the, the spirit of Encanto. So in terms of degree of difficulty and in terms of quality of output, even if you take the whole Lynn's got to win his EGOT thing out of the equation, this richly, richly deserves the award. So it's not like he came and said, give me my award, please. He, he really, he did not phone it in on this one. So I'm, I'm definitely rooting for it. To my point earlier about behemoths in their field, like Lin-Manuel Miranda has been a total, like he really kind of changed the conversation in American pop culture kind of over the last four years in a way that doesn't, it truly feels lasting to me. Um, and I mean, he's been working at it for way longer than the last four years, but ever since, it, you know, Hamilton became the, the phenomenon, the phenomenon that it was like, I, I think we're, that's a turning point. Um, and he's, uh, I think that's kind of what's, you know, at play here when you see the output at work, you see, oh, this is a person operating at the height of their craft, doing things that are difficult for them, doing things that are, that are challenging and, and things that are working, you know, like it's, it's not a whiff, it's like a, he connected. So uh, two great songs so far. One last point you had pointed out earlier, Louie, and I agree with you that the soundtrack as a form has, is kind of going the way of the Dodo. Not many soundtracks sell anymore, except for this one. Encanto is also the number one album in America right now. And it's the exception to a lot of rules because you're right, by and large, soundtracks don't, don't shift units the way they used to. Well, musicals are different. But musicals are different. And, and Lin-Manuel Miranda is the exception to a lot of rules because the Hamilton cast album, Broadway cast albums also don't chart well the way they did decades ago. And yet Hamilton peaked at number two on the charts, is multi-platinum, is still on the charts right now. So Lin-Manuel is the exception to a lot of rules there. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's in a lot of ways, you know, we talked briefly about TikTok and we talked briefly about charts and, and the music industry is obviously still trying to figure out like what works, like what is, what are we doing here? Like what is, what is the, what can we rely on? And there's not a clear answer, you know, the way that there used to be. Um, and I think people like Lin-Manuel Miranda who are out in front, you know, stylistically, creatively, like I'm gonna do something that, that uh, is different and like it would never be focus groups. I think that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of thing that drives innovation and like kind of drives the industry in a way that uh, is exciting. Here, here. Well, the third song on our list is Down to Joy. From Belfast, music and lyric by Van Morrison. Well, the sleepless night, I had a kind of dream for sure. 
Felt like I was coming down to joy What did I see, what did I hear When I was coming down Had a brand new story But I was coming down to joy So that's from a best picture contender, Belfast, directed by Kenneth Branagh. And I mentioned Branagh because, of course, he asked Morrison, Van Morrison, to do uh, that song and to license a bunch of his songs for Belfast, a movie that, you know, obviously takes place in Belfast in Northern Ireland, uh, where Branagh himself grew up. It's a it's kind of this year's Roma, a black and white, thinly veiled uh, you know, buildings Roman slash Romana Clef about, you know, his own childhood, Brana's own childhood. And in keeping with the Irishness of the movie, for lack of a better term, he wanted one of the most Irish rock stars of all time to do all the music. That's the original. Um, you know, this is a common gambit where maybe you have a bunch of old songs, but then you throw in one new one because that can be the Oscar nominee. Two points I'd make about this song at a metal level one um personally i'd love to know what you guys thought if either of you saw any of you saw belfast um i like van morrison a lot a couple of his albums are all-time favorites of mine but i found the music the use of his music in this film jarring and it took me out every time i heard it that's one thought to put on the table to start the other thought that i find interesting is he made it off the short list into the final five, despite the fact that Van Morrison has become uh, almost canceled for his uh, anti-vax, anti-mask, anti, I want to, you know, let me tour when I want, damn it, uh, attitude. He's, uh, he's even recorded music about, uh, you know, believing that, um, I don't know, COVID-19 is a hoax and all of this stuff. Uh, he and Eric Clapton are kind of two peas in a pod right now on this. Uh, so so-called liberal Hollywood, didn't seem to see that as a problem and uh and nominated him um and then we can talk about the song but I, at a meta level i found that fascinating that he was on the 15 song shortlist and he got into the final five and i just have to put that down as good old boomer bait not that if anybody deserves it van morrison does deserve it he's a rock and roll hall of famer for a reason but um yeah anyway i'd like to speak to that because it's you know he makes like an like a an anti-vax like album or you know COVID is a hoax album but what's interesting to me as a songwriter during and and i don't know when this tune was written um but it sounds like it was written specifically for the film so in the last three or four years in the last couple years he is writing beautiful songs like this and then we'll write an you know uh, six months later write an, uh, an anti-vax album and so this this is a clearly an inspired person that when he sits down at the piano um you don't know what's gonna get come out but he's still in in gear you know and so i i do find it interesting that you know the the, the normally liberal kind of gauge of, of of hollywood is 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 accepting you know him who has been so he's been so outspoken in some of these more kind of extreme views but when you get when you get down to this tune it feels like it's from the 70s right away or early 70s uh Agreed. and it's 
in its phrasing and in its instrumentation, even the recording, it feels like uh, it feels like there's a band playing. It feels uh, it feels warm. Um, and I think the you know the lyric, you know, the, it's a very Irish lyric. And and I'm I'm Irish, and I and I was just in Ireland in the fall. I was I was working in the UK for a little bit, and we went to Ireland for a little bit. And the Irish are just, you know down to joy it's never it's never up to joy it, it, it it's always <laughs> always some melancholy involved and so i i i love the, the unique melancholy of well I'm, I'm coming down to joy and uh i don't know i, I feel like I, I i like the song for that reason um I, I i like i like van morrison's catalog um maybe not maybe i don't celebrate it but this feels like it's certainly a, 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 an awesome representative of his great, you know, moon dance and all the, all those great songs. Um, but it does feel like kind of a quintessential Irish song for a, a, an Irish movie by an Irish director. And so, yeah, um, it all checks out. Do I think it's as good as the Bay song or the, or the Lynn manual song? I, I don't know. I don't know if it's that timeless, but I think it's an awesome song. And I think it, it serves its purpose for sure. Yeah, I mean, um... <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's about right for the song. <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't want to be flippant, but it's like, okay. Yeah, it's it's Van Morrison doing Van Morrison, and it's very good. But like, and you know, I think, I think that uh, I, where I come down on this is like the 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 music of this film as a whole, where it's like, it's a move, it's a flavor. And like, it's not my flavor, but clearly it was a considered choice and it was a consistent choice. And so like, I guess I give props to that, but I, I think like, again, I mean like the, the, the most noteworthy thing about this is that we have, it's, you know, 2022, and we have Van Morrison in, in the running for best original song. Like that is very interesting that this Titan from, you know, the sixties and seventies is tapped to do this um, in this way. Like, like I said before, like every single, uh, every single song in this category has a uh, a titan behind it somewhere um and so this is no exception i just don't particularly connect with the song or yeah <laughs> i mean yeah i feel like to mix point that it's van doing what he does and louis you just echoed it i'm gonna damn it with very faint praise when i say you could put this in a white box that's labeled van morrison's song on it and you could you know sell it that way i mean mm -hmm. it's it is for better and worse, a quintessential moon dance slash St. Dominic's preview era, early 70s, you know, Caledonia Orchestra, what he, what he called his band back then, era van tune. I, I get a bright side of the road vibe off of it. I get a uh, caravan vibe off of it. And those are better songs by far. Uh, but, you know, he's not embarrassing himself here, certainly. Uh, I don't know if we're setting the bar awfully low. Um, I, I struggle with this because I don't think that this is, again, like, what are we evaluating? Are, are we evaluating 
you know, to say best song. Okay. Well, um, like it doesn't need to be truly innovative to be like, he doesn't need to be doing something he's never done before. Very true. In a lot of senses, I think that these categories can be helpful, like in distilling, like what the essence of an act is about. Is about. And we're going to get to when we talk about the Bond song, but here, like the best example that I can think of, and, and this is kind of a not real example because it, it wasn't nominated for anything because it didn't become anything, but I think about uh, Radiohead's Spectre, the the track that they made for Spectre that didn't actually get uh, placed in the film. I think about that. There would all be the time. there would be Bond theme. There would be Bond theme. Yes, I think about that all the time because I think that I can't think of a better if an alien came to Earth and was like, "What is Radiohead?" I would just give them that song. And I think a lot of these these moments where artists collaborate with filmmakers is an opportunity for them to kind of distill what they do into a three to four minute idea. Not necessarily, I'm gonna innovate, I'm gonna do something totally different. This is where I kind of collect all of what I do and kind of put it together in a, in a way that encapsulates uh, my career. Um, and in that sense, it's like, you know, I don't think that Van Morrison was asked to do something crazy new. He probably got the job because it was like, hey, you're Van Morrison do Van Morrison. And he dutifully did. Yeah. And I think that these collaborations with filmmakers um, are often about um, like they got hired for a reason and the reason is because of their past work. And, and I think that this is a good example of that. You know, the only other thought, I agree with all of that. The only other thought I have about this in terms of its winnability or lack thereof in the category, I find that at least in the last say 20, 25 years, Veteran rock artists, veteran artists in general can get into the category and get nominated, but it's surprising how often they're upset and don't win. Um, the, the one counter example that leaps to mind is when Bob Dylan was nominated and won for his song from Wonder Boys. This is more than 20 years ago. Uh, things have changed. That was an exceptionally good Bob Dylan song. It was Bob doing Bob, but it was a pretty damn good Bob Dylan song. Um but Sting has been nominated in this category, I think, four times and never won. You two were nominated for two th different songs, I think, including that Scorsese film. Uh, they did uh, The Hands That Built America, um, and that didn't win. So it seems, in terms of the, wow, how did Van get into this category against such tough odds? It's not that hard for veteran acts to get into the category, but that usually is where it ends. Um, and so I'm not guessing that this is going to go all the way. But... Who knows? I mean, maybe if other songs split the vote, this could surprise. Um, because to the points you both are making, for better and for worse, and let's say for a minute, let's look at the glasses half full and say for better, it's Van Morrison doing what he does best. Ain't nothing wrong with that. I didn't particularly love it in the film. Again, um, when you ask me what's the most memorable musical moment in Belfast, I'm going to tell you the moment where Jamie Dornan, who plays the father, uh, sings Everlasting Love, that that classic uh, late 60s song that, you know, was made famous by Carl Carlton and Gloria Estefan had a hit with it. Um, it's in the trailer. 
it's really captivating. He's like a superhero to the, to the little boy when he sings that song in front of a crowd. It's almost treated like a dream sequence in the film. Um, that's a fantastic musical moment. And frankly, I like it better than any single Van Morrison moment in the film. So that's the other factor that we've been talking about with some of these songs. Louis, you especially have brought it up. Like, what, what are we voting for here? And if we're voting for what the song made us feel in the context of the movie, I'm not sure Van Morrison does all that well in that competition. But then again, he is Van Morrison. So we'll see what happens. The fourth song on our list is No Time to Die, from No Time to Die, music and lyric by Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell. Was I stupid to love you? Was I reckless to help? Was it obvious to everybody else that I've fallen for a lie? You were never on my side Fool me once, fool me twice Are you dead the paradise? Now you never see me cry There's just no time to die All right, so in terms of stakes, uh, this song's been around a while. Uh, as has the movie it comes from. I mean, I think most people who follow movies even a little bit know about the sad fate of Daniel Craig's final James Bond film, No Time to Die, and how it was on and off the release schedule something like eight times due to COVID-19. It was sort of the first blockbuster in the spring of 2020 that was hit really hard by the timing of the pandemic. And it only finally made its way into theaters in the, what was it, like November of 2021, and did not do exceptionally well, at least in America. The reason that's important is here we have a Billie Eilish song that also, when nobody knew what was coming or couldn't quite tell what was coming in the winter of 2020, it was released, you know, as a teaser for the film. It was issued on streaming services and iTunes. It charted, it charted below the top 10. I believe it peaked somewhere around like number 16, if memory serves. So it did fine. Some Bond films do better than others. Bond films are not guaranteed to go top 10. Uh, it did better than the one uh, writings on the wall from um, the prior Bond film uh, by, um, what's his name? Smith. Sam Smith. Sam Smith. Thank you. I was blanking on his first name. By Sam Smith. Um so it, it charted better than that song, but not as well as Adele's Skyfall, certainly. So here we have a song that's been around for two years and had its very brief pop culture moment at a not very ideal time two years ago. Um, I will say it's an excellent Bond theme, in my opinion. Um, I like it a lot. And this is where Louie and I are going to have our very gentle debate over whether or not picking Billie Eilish is picking the current flavor. And I'm a big Billie Eilish fan, but the current chart topping flavor for your Bond movie, much the way Duran Duran was chosen in 1985 or, you know, aha, were chosen in 1987 or, you know, take your pick. Cheryl Crow was chosen in the late nineties, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think she turns out to be both, on trend 
and maybe Louis and I agree on this, actually appropriate for the franchise. Um, she and her brother Phineas, who co-write and co-produce all of the all of the music that is released under Billie Eilish's name, have said, and I've heard this in enough interviews that I think I believe them, that they had a dream of doing a Bond theme. It seems odd to be that young and have a dream of doing a Bond theme. But where I buy their little story is that I can believe that those two, given what I know of their catalog and the atmospheric ethereal style of Billie Eilish's regular music, I can totally see them jumping at the chance to do a Bond theme. Um, and I'd love to hear you guys talk about the tropes, the musical tropes, because of course the challenge with every Bond theme is that you've got to work that old, you know, motif. Uh, was that John Barry? Whoever came up with that in the 60s. You've got to work that motif into the melody. And they allude to it, I think, in a fairly clever way. So that's all I'll say for now. Yeah, there. this is a, a juicy one. Um, I, I think I agree. And I don't know what Louis is going to say. But I think that Phineas and Billy are really appropriate vehicles for for a bond theme um it could be right place right time but if you listen to the catalog especially phineas's catalog it is very uh dramatic music he is um it's it's very score like a lot of his a lot of his productions are like the new billy album is a lot of jazz it is a lot of here, here. It is a lot of complicated chord, chord, quarterly. It's very complicated and arrangements are very exciting. It is not at all pop. Um, so I, I feel like the sleek kind of jazzy cocktail dress bond persona is like spot on with this production and her delivery. It is like amazing. Now, as a songwriter, Every day I go in and when we're trying to write a song, you, you number one, the, the first thing you got to do is you got to write that chorus and you got to have an awesome title because you're thinking this song is going to be on New Music Friday and what what is what are kids going to see that thing on New Music Friday and they're going to click on it. Now, here we have, they already have the title, No Time to Die. The, 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 the producers say, we want, we want you guys to, to, to write a song. They got the title and I think it's the coolest title in the world. No Time to Die is like, so captivating i i don't know exactly what it means it just feels cool you know so the issue is i feel like they didn't quite crack the lyrical code for that epic punchline the the death or paradise i i don't know like there all the sounds are there and, and this is a whole nother discussion but there are some songwriters that write like we if you saw the beatles doc some people some songwriters screw the lyric if the word sounds good in the melody we're going to do that. Doesn't matter what you say. You could be talking about if hippopotamus is the right word in the melody, then you're going to sing the word hippopotamus. There, I think there are choices here um, where the the lyrical payoff, I mean, Billy is and, and Phineas, they are in the business of punchline pop. And so when you get to that punchline, it, it was just for me as an A&R, as this is what I do every day, and I have to give a thumbs up or thumbs down like a hundred times a day when you're writing a song, I can't, I don't feel like they quite nailed it as like this timeless like payoff where you're like, damn, that is, wow, you you really got it. I feel like there's too much ethereal con like concepts just before that title, and we're getting really in the weeds. Too many things 
for the average listener to be like, oh, okay, it all makes sense. It didn't do that to me, but nevertheless, I think still think it's awesome and super impressive and amazing and a, a, an accomplishment. But I see what they're trying to do, and I don't know if they quite if they quite got to that moment of pure perfection, which is so nearly impossible to do. That happens so infrequently, but they got close. And um, at least for the movie, it is out, absolutely outstanding. So that's my take. It's really interesting, both of your points. But I guess, Chris, to answer your question, I think it's an extremely appropriate choice for the Daniel Craig era bond which is like, okay, so I just have to full disclosure, I am a very, I get very excited about the pageantry, like especially the music around James Bond because it's one of the few musical through lines in that every couple of years we all get together and we talk about, ooh, like that chord. How are they going to use that chord? Yeah. Yeah. With as a as a music nerd, I'm like, whoa, we're all having the same conversation about the same thing, and that's like, that's great. The the target isn't moving, you know, which it is almost all the time. So I get very excited about the Bond stuff because it's an extra. It's a big cultural exercise in kind of the music theory, which like we don't really ever like want to engage in, um, for for good reason. You know, because that's not really the end goal of music is not to like do something theoretically cool, it's to do something cool. So I have kind of like a lot to say about the Bond stuff, but the, the Daniel Craig Bond is really interesting because like it's it's moody Bond, you know? It's like, what if Bond had feelings? That's like the whole premise. And uh, I love it. And I think after Austin Powers, like they had to do it or else Bond was not, uh, that had no place. And like Austin Powers did it better. Uh, so they had to be like, okay, let's do Bond with feelings. I think that this song, I just love it because to Nick's point, when they hit that chorus every time, there's just no time to die. I agree with you, Nick. They're not saying, there's not really, the punchline isn't, there's no time to die. It's, we got a freaking Bond song. Like, that's what they're saying. And that's exciting to me. Like what they're really like every time I hear like Skyfall or the title of the song, title of the movie in the song, I just think James Bond. Like that, that's the punchline. And I'm kind of okay with that. Um, I understand from like a pure songwriting perspective, it might not be the most gratifying. But earlier I said that every song has a kind of titan behind it, a kind of like behemoth. And Chris, you uh you would forecast it that we might be disagreeing on this. And I might be kind of sidestepping here. I, I don't think that Billy or Phineas are the Titans to what, they, those weren't the Titans to which I was referring. I was talking about kind of like, there's two actually. One is the ghost of the legacy of John Barry, which is every couple of years, we all hear the same chords and we get super stoked about it. And that is a kind of musical, uh, it's an event, you know? Um, but the other thing is, is that I listen to the song and I hear Hans Zimmer behind it. And whether or not he is, he's not actually credited on the production, but his influence 
on the production of this song is, is I think instrumental in understanding like the choices that were made for it and also like how it ties back into the score. I wasn't particularly a big fan of the score. I thought it was, it played with camp in an interesting way and, and uh, it, it had kind of a retro feel to it. But I think that when I listened to the Billie Eilish version of the song, what I'm hearing is Billie Eilish on top of, of Hans Zimmer. And I think that in that sense, Hans Zimmer's like presence in this category is, is the, that's the big Titan that I'm talking about. You know, movie music has changed forever because what he's done over the last 30 years. And so I, I think it's, and again, back to our earlier conversation about it being reserved. This is a pretty reserved song. Um, it, it's, doesn't, it's not really, not a lot of fireworks. Again, I think there's a kind of Zimmer-esque kind of maximal minimalist thing going on here where it's like, we're gonna play a one triad, one chord, but it's gonna be really loud or it's gonna be really deep or it's gonna be really full. Um, I think that that is what, and in that sense, I think it's really effective. It bridges the gap between pop music today and the sound of the movie and the kind of legacy of the harmonies that make up the music that we all know in, in the Bond catalog. So, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I could go on all day about just how the music of Bond is, that's kind of like what I think a lot of people get excited about. Like they're, they're just waiting for that, jazz chord they're waiting for that one mo they're waiting for that chromatic walk up and then walk down in a way it's it's a little bit more like a like a musical roller coaster like a ride than it is a movie um and i think that's really cool so that's that's why i like uh talking about this particular song so much yeah, I mean, we could go down so many rabbit holes about Bond themes in general. Um, I've seen so many rankings of Bond themes. It feels like every online magazine has done its own ranking. And what the shocker is that none of them ever agree with each other. I, I'm not sure there's an agreement that Diamonds Are Forever or Goldfinger. Goldfinger usually makes the top three. But then some people think that Shirley Bassey's stuff is camp. Some people think it's perfect. Um I know people who hate the Duran Duran theme. I know people who love the Duran Duran theme and think it's one of the very best. I've seen a range of opinions, but you're right that the reason everybody wants to rank Bond themes is that we all feel like we have a stake in it. It's, it's, it's a very exciting example. And particularly, Louis, what you do, it's, it's an infusion of score into pop song form that we all talk about every, I wish it were every two years. It's really more like every five these days because these movies are getting less frequent. Mm -hmm. um, not mm -hmm. that I need more Bond films in my life, but they they are getting less frequent. Yeah. It's interesting because like there are other musical movie events out there. Um, you know, I think everybody feels this way about Star Wars. That, you know, but we're never going to hear, uh, I don't know, I shouldn't say never, but like we're not going to hear like a Star Wars song you know, Cantina Band number one in 1977, Mecco's cover of Star Wars theme Cantina Band. But okay. that's camp, <laughs> totally campy. But never, never mind. Go on. I think that what's great about Bond is that it, this Bond songs, is that it started in a very, very different place 
like the and the title sequence in the song, having that structural element, that through line, has allowed for the as a kind of like bellwether to kind of just see like, well, where where are we now in pop music? Where you know who's popular now? Who's at the same time being like, let's let's all try and interpret these three chords. Um, this the same way so in a lot of senses it's very much like what's happening now and in, a, and in another sense it's it's really like okay this is an extended exercise uh that we're all going to engage in over decades of how do we interpret um this shared little musical meme um, and to bring it back to the role of streaming and tiktok i think bond is a great example of, of what's happening in music where uh, small sections of songs are starting to get, uh, basically the, the audience is, is very open to thinking about music like memes now. Right, that's what TikTok is. Exactly, and, and in a lot of ways, the, there's Bond is just full of little memes musically. Huh, that's a good point. And, Every every um, original song is like okay, how are we going to interpret this this meme? Um, I mean, I th I think that uh, every year uh, we should get a, a new one, even if there's no movie. Like, I think every year we should just like <laughs> release a new Bond song. So the Olivia Rodrigo version sometime later this year, maybe that would be amazing. Yeah, um, I'll just have a couple more quick thoughts. Um, in terms of Oscar winnability of Bond themes, if we were having this conversation a decade ago, even when Adele got nominated, I would have said, well, you know, Adele is Adele and she's the biggest singer out there, but I'm not so sure this song's going to win. And then she won. She was Hers was the first Bond theme ever to win the Oscar, which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about Live and Let Die from Paul McCartney and Wings. Nobody Does It Better, probably my favorite by Carly Simon. That was like a classic uh, you know, song song that was like a big ass radio hit didn't win. View to a Kill by Duran Duran didn't win. No Bond theme could take home the gold until Adele did. And then in this weird upset, and by the way, this is going to touch on the fifth song we're about to talk about in a way that I'll, you guys can't predict. Uh, in an upset, uh, Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith actually won. And even Sam Smith was stunned when he went up to get the award. So for some reason, maybe to your point, Louis, suddenly James Bond songs are Oscar gold. We only have a trend of two to point to thus far because there have only been three of these movies in the last decade. But I can't tell whether this is the heavy odds-on favorite, which some critics, including Paul Grine at Billboard, seem to think it is, or whether you know it had its moment two years ago and it's kind of over. Okay, well, I, I was just to respond to that. I think that Skyfall marks... So the, the Daniel Craig era Bonds were big changes for the franchise. Musically, I don't think they caught up to what the tone was until Skyfall. Interesting. I think that Skyfall was the first theme of the Daniel Craig eras that was like, oh, we get it. Bond is about feelings now. It's not about the kind of uh, pastiche or, or camp or machismo that it had been in the past. It's about dark and broody feelings about what it means to be, you know, basically like uh, 
what duty means, right? Or like what like obligation means, like all the like larger themes about that that the, the Daniel Craig era stuff is trying to figure out. I think it took them two films musically to figure that out because if you listen to the theme songs to Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, they don't sound, it sounds like uh, Pierce Brosnan era. The first one was Chris Cornell and the second one was that weird pairing of Alicia Keys and Jack White, if I remember correctly. Yes, yes. They were still like, oh, I think we might be in like, Pierce Brosnan era, like, but they weren't, but they weren't. And so musically, I don't think they figured it out until Skyfall, which is, which is why I think, why I think it happened when it did. The only other thought I want to make to go way back to something Mick said, I totally agree that Billy is going heavy into you're you're the songwriter, you're the expert, but if you're hearing jazz chords, I'm hearing jazz too. I've been thinking that, frankly, her hits have been getting jazzier and jazzier for a while. She sings almost like Billie Holiday on some of her tracks. The, the vibrato in her voice is not like modern pop singing, and which weirdly makes Billie ideal to sing this kind of Bond theme, it seems to me. But again, it's anybody's guess whether that's going to mean that this is the heavy favorite to win. I don't know. I, I, that, that I'm completely, you know, I, 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 didn't, I wouldn't want to make a guess on that. The final song on our list is Somehow You Do from Four Good Days. Music and lyric by Diane Warren. When you think it's the end of the road, it's just cause you don't know where the road's leading to. When you think that the mountain's too high and the ocean's too wide, you'll never get through. Somehow you do. So here we go again. This is the third year that we've done this conversation. We've had a Diane Warren nominee each year to talk about. For those who are keeping track at home, this is, I believe, her 13th nomination without a win. Well, 12 without a win. We'll see if she wins with this one. I doubt it, given the competition. Um, this one is sung by Reba McIntyre, the you know country queen. Uh, so if the goodwill that it, virtually everybody seems to feel toward Reba rubs off on Diane Warren and gives her the pixie dust, then, you know, bully for Diane Warren. It is clear to me that there is a faction in the music branch that's producing this list of nominees that wants Diane Warren to win the damn statue already. Um, and the reason I say that is because if you go back and look at the, the nominations she got early in her career, these were massive hits. Uh, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now from Mannequin, Because You Love Me from Up Close and Personal. Those were both number one hits. How Do I Live from Con Air. That was a big hit. I Don't Want to Miss a Thing from Armageddon, Music of My Heart, There You'll Be. Literally every track I just ticked off was a top 10 Hot 100 hit. Mega hits. Mega hits. Monster, monster hits, right? Not just hits, hits, like big ass hits. And Say this for Diane Warren, and I'm not a huge fan. I've said this in past years of her writing style, but she can write in any idiom, right? She Last year's nomination, as we were saying earlier, was an Italian and sung by Laura Pausini. This year's is sung by a country queen. So she can do anything. But if you want to hear the second half of her nominations, they came from Beyond the Lights, The Hunting Ground, Marshall, RBG, Breakthrough, The Life Ahead, and now Four Good Days and their songs like 
grateful and till it happens to you and stand up for something and I'll fight. None of these are remotely hits. So look, hit status shouldn't have anything to do with this. It should be the quality of the song and everything. But um, there's a part of me that really wishes, and here's where I'm going to bring back the James Bond point. When Diane Warren lost her, I don't know, eighth or ninth award, she was the the heavy favorite that year. This was the year that the song from a tiny documentary called The Hunting Ground, uh, the song Till It Happens to You, sung by none other than Lady Gaga, was her nomination. And it didn't win. It lost to Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith from uh, Spectre, I guess, the James Bond film. And there's the part of me that really, really wishes that the Gaga song, which I thought was not great, not terrible, fine. I thought it was good. Would have just won the damn thing already. Because something tells me we wouldn't be taking up space. I mean, look, if, if there's a crowd out there that are Diane Warren stands who think we got to give her this damn prize and they're going to keep sticking these songs she does for tiny, tiny, tiny movies into the game every year, I guess if you think they deserve to be there, sure. Uh, but I feel like we probably could have averted this like six Oscars ago if she just won for The Hunting Ground. Um, which is to say nothing about the quality of the song. And I'll let you guys opine on that before I give an opinion about it. Yeah, I wonder about the politics. Our, it's funny, our neighbor downstairs, he, he's a publicist for films, for foreign films. And he was the publicist for Parasite and made that happen. And now he's a publicist for uh, Drive My Car. And so like, he is like really operating at like the highest level and like who's on who's behind the scenes uplifting these songs who's in in the academy saying okay we're gonna do this this i've never i I haven't heard this movie the song is dope i mean but i just wonder what are the machinations that get 13 nominations like sometimes it's the no-brainer you know like the the armageddon tune and no brain cells needed but when you have smaller films that have been kind of overlooked um, you know, this sounds, it, when you look at the song by itself, it's, it's an awesome song. I think what Diane Warren does really well is, in which I think like, even like Max Martin, like the highest, like if you, if you use platitudes, if you use general ideas and general phrases and the melody is good enough, then go as simple and as general as possible. And I feel like Diane Warren, every line here, there's nothing that like sticks out and is like a thorn, like a country tune you want. I always want to get like a little thorn in my side from a real, a real blue line, something, something blue. There's nothing blue here, but it's all so comfortable and relatable because not everybody listens to music like we do because we listen all the time and we're listening on various levels and we spend our whole life doing this stuff. So for the average listener, hearing these lines and this message in this tune, I think is really uplifting. Um, And I think it's effective. And I think that's where Diane Warren knows how to speak to the average listener, not the careful listener, but the listener who, who, who just, who just hears something and just is able to translate it simply in, in, in purely emotional terms. And so I think this is another victory. Uh, there's an awesome key change in this tune. Like it's like, she just knows how to really 
bring the emotion out of a melody and has done that for so long. Um, but Chris, to your point, I'm just trying to figure out what, how does this song, like these other tunes we're talking about, it will, it's really, to me, it's what? It's the James Bond, the Lin-Manuel song and the Beyonce song. Those are like the heavy hitters. How are these other two tunes make sense in that, in, in, in that world? You know, I, I don't know, but um, I do really tune. I think it's, uh, it's awesome. And it feels like last year's, or maybe it was two years ago. It's just, she just has a knack for melody and it's just the biggest, most dramatic, right spot on the, the, the key of the song is great. Who was it? Reba. Yeah. Just finding the right singers to sing her songs and, and, and it's beautiful. Um, and I enjoy the tune, but I, I, I don't know we, we, you know, talking about this tune after no time to die, no time. It's like, that's like an avalanche, you know, and this is like a, like a flurry of a song or something. I don't know, but it's, yeah. I, 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 I do. I'm a fan of Diane Warren now from doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, this is the Titan that I was, to, that I was talking about. Like, okay, Diane Warren is just like an absolute beast, uh, not recognized like we talked about for, for her achievements and uh, yeah, I, I hope she gets some hardware at some point. Um, she has plenty of Grammys for what it's worth, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, what are your thoughts on the title of this song? Somehow you do. Um, you know what? I, I, I see a title like this and it's really vague. Somehow you do. <laughs> it's, it's like, you have to be in, once you hear the song, then the title's great. But when you see that title, I can see it. Like a lot of my, a lot of mental energy in my life goes into choosing titles. And somehow you do, feels almost like, it feels kind of like a Beatles thing. I don't know, like, I, I don't know what it is, but like, it sounds okay to me, the sound of the title. Like using like your third part of your brain that doesn't work or something. I don't know, it feels okay. but. I don't know, like if you're grinding it out all day in a session and you're like, this is the title of the song and we're gonna go deliver this to the producers or the label or whatever. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I had a really hard time. Like, I felt like I was looking at like one of those like pictures where you can only see if you like relax your eyes. Like I had a really hard time, like like for some reason this, the title was like giving me a hard time and it really reminded me of that amazing bit in Arrested Development where the Christian television show is called um, And As It Is Such, So Also As Such, It Is Unto You. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's just like, okay, well, I, I, there's got to be some something a little hookier that they could have called this song, right? And, you know, I think a lot about what you said about the, the titles. It's a very Jimmy Webb idea to, like, write the title first and then write what the song is to the title. I think that's such a tried and true technique for songwriters, especially in the pop world, that I don't think this title is super helping it. The title forecasts maybe some of the the broader, the, 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 the kind of vagaries of the tune, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't have much else to add on this one because I haven't seen the movie. Has anybody seen the movie? I'm going to assume not. Um, and... I don't know if it moves the story forward or, or what, but um, someday Diane Warren is going to ascend to that podium and like uh, 
poor old Randy Newman when he went on what his 13th try or something. And he got up there and said, I don't need your pity. <laughs> love Randy. <laughs> love Randy. One of my all time favorite Oscar speech lines. Someday we're going to get the, I don't need your pity speech from Diane Warren. I don't think it's going to be this year. Then again, my last thought, we did this a year ago and I don't think any of us saw coming that her was going to win the best song prize. I think we all picked something different in that category and stranger things have happened. So I guess we'll see. Well, those are our five nominees and we will see at the end of March what the Academy goes for. We're not going to go deep on other songs, but tell me if there was something that you thought should have been competitive in this space. Um, just because I, everybody knew what the 15 song shortlist was. And there were a couple on there that were more heavily favored. The rapper known as Kid, Kid Cudi, Scott Muscudi, could have been nominated twice. He co-wrote the song that Jay-Z got snubbed for, Guns Go Bang from The Harder They Fall. Uh, I thought that stood a shot. And then the other one that I thought stood an even better shot that Cudi could have gotten nominated for, and I'm not a fan of this movie, but uh, one of my favorite moments in uh, Don't Look Up uh, is the song Don't Look Up or Just Look Up, excuse me. I think that's the title. It's meant to be ironic, performed by Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi in the movie. Uh, I really thought, particularly with Ariana Grande, who seems to sprinkle fairy dust on everything charts-wise these days, that that was an easy, easy favorite for this category and it didn't make it. So I don't know what that means for the for Don't Look Up's shot on other prizes, but it was interesting. Yeah, I thought that was a cool song from Don't Look Up. It's silly, but it's like um, Ariana, she just has the, the voice of, of right now. You just hear her voice and it sounds expensive and awesome. And when she's singing for a movie and with Kid Cudi, I mean, I, that, yeah, it would have been nice to hear that in, 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 a, in a list. Yeah, I agree. Maybe at some point we could do a podcast about, uh, I don't know what to call them, not fake songs, but <laughs> original songs that are that exist in the universe of the movie as a song that they wrote. Uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, Adam Schlesinger recently, who died um, almost two years ago. Amazing songwriter. He's in Fountains of Wayne, right? Yeah, Fountains of Wayne. But he, he wrote That Thing You Do. Um, which like for my money is like, like one of the all time best, like fiction, fictional songs. I, 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 you can't call it that because it's like, it's a real song. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's really interesting when movies offer up, um, original songs within the logic of the movie. They're like, Hey, a songwriter in this fictional world wrote this song that is a fictional hit in this fictional world. I, I think that that's kind of like a really deep <laughs> this inception levels of deepness happening there. So I, I also really liked the Ariana Grande song, but it kind of reminded me of some other really great songs within the universe of the movie that, that there's, a, there's a tradition of that. And I'm, I'm kind of fond of that tradition. Well, we'll see how it goes. It'll be an interesting year. Uh, I mentioned the IMDb page and your film credits earlier, but if listeners are curious about your extracurricular activities outside of the film work, where should they go? Just around the table. Chris, why don't you kick us off? Well, you can either go to my website where I collect all of my writing and podcasts, uh, which is just my last name, molanphy.com, M-O-L-A-N-P-H-Y.com, or look for Hit Parade in your podcatcher. Uh, that's my 
May outlet, and uh, we're approaching our fifth anniversary. So if you've never listened to the show, we only put out one episode a month, but it's now quite bingeable because we have over, I think we're up to 55 episodes. So plenty, plenty to listen to there. Uh, if you want to follow my Instagram at Martin underscore celery, um, that is, I just, that's where I list the tunes that I love that I have in my catalog. I just put those out and then I have my whole catalog of songs that I've written um, there, but you know, if you want to see what I'm working on. Yeah. Likewise, it's just kind of, um, strange to be a musician and be repping Instagram, but I think the best way to, best way to see what I'm up to is, uh, at Louis Weeks. And that's Louis spelled with an S, right? L-O-U-I-S. Yeah. Thanks guys. And of course, we're expecting all of you back next week when we talk about original score. We appreciate having you guys on the show. Until then. Thanks, Skid. Thank you. Listeners, that's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please visit our website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. It's easy to peruse past episodes, and you'll find links to all of our social media. That includes our page on IMDb, which I'm not getting paid to mention this, but it is an easy way to learn more about our guests. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Watt for our logo, and all of you for sticking with us. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts, and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line. Hey, Louie, I'm getting a little poppiness on you, and I don't know if it's my side or your side, or if there's anything we can do to tweak it. What, what kind of popping are we talking about? I just, I'm, is anybody else hearing it? It's, well, I would describe it not so much as popping, but he's, there are little blips occasionally where he goes out in the middle of a word or something. That's what I'm hearing. Mm, okay. Um, and I don't know, again, I think I can hear everything you've said, so it will work. Yeah, and, it's not like any point you like, made has been It's lost. not like you're underwater or anything, but, uh, and yeah, I should know better than describing the audio with this crowd. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Popping, okay. interesting. Are we talking like 4K, 4K boost? <laughs> yeah.